verse 11. So if you'd find that in your Bibles or if you didn't bring a Bible, there's a pew Bible there in front of you. It's helpful to see it as we read it together and helpful to have it in front of you as we walk through the passage together this morning. First Peter chapter two, verse four through verse 11. Let's stand together as we read God's word. First, first Peter chapter two, beginning with verse four, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God's chosen and precious You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, you are a royal, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You may be seated. Let's take a moment to reflect on God's word this morning. Like me, sometimes you need somebody else's energy to capture your energy. And Sam did that for me today, as the rest of the team did, and so that was great. How would you answer the question, who are you? I mean, it kind of seems like a simple question, doesn't it? But then you think, but but how would I answer that question? There's a lot of different ways I would try to answer that question. Uh, You might just say, well, my name is Paul Morgan Phillips. You might just say, this is my name. That's who I am. You might say, I'm an American. Um, Or if you have some heritage, I have, my grandparents were from um, Italy. My grandmother's last name was Marcaselli. So that's such a cool name. I wish I had that in my name somewhere. Marcaselli. I shouldn't say it that way, but I mean, you know, something cool. You're you're from somewhere. You've got an identification. Maybe it's what you, who are you? It's what you do. I'm a teacher. You know, I'm a pastor. I'm a businessman, I'm a homemaker, I'm a wife, I'm a husband, I'm, I'm something of, uh, I'm, a, I'm an occupation. If you're in the army, you get some identification, they're called dog tags. And so you wear these around your neck, and since my dad was in the army, they give your family some when you go overseas, and we lived in Germany for a little while, so even though I couldn't read it when I was there, if I got lost, this was Paul M. Phillips, male. 31 May 63, that's when I was born. I'm a Baptist. Go Baptist. <laughs> I was waiting for an amen on that one, but I'm a U.S. national. What, 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 what hangs around your neck? What, what would you say to the question, who are you? What's your identification? Peter's 
in this passage is addressing a people who've been set adrift from the moorings of the world. They're not able to identify themselves from a worldly standpoint anymore. And we've seen it in several different places. Chapter 1, verse 3, they've been born again. They were born into this world. They had a certain kind of identity, but now they've been born again. If you have trusted in Christ, you've been born again. So, so now what is your last name? Now what is your nationality if you've been born again? In chapter 1, verse 18, you've been ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. These are people who've been purchased by God, and they've been uncoupled from their identity from their forefathers. Chapter 2, verse 11, Peter says they're sojourners or foreigners and exiles. So this world is no longer their home. So Peter understands in these congregations that he's writing this letter to that they no longer have a main identity with the world. They can't primarily identify themselves from that standpoint. And so he's going to help them understand that they have a a different identity. He's going to reconnect his congregation and us as well to a new identity. And Peter builds this new identity by reminding them of three things that we want to look at in the passage. First, he wants to remind them who they are built on, verses 4 through 8. Secondly, he wants to remind them who they are built with, verses 9 and 10. And third, what they are built for, verse 9. Who are they built on? Who are they built with? What are they built for? So in some ways, Peter answers the question that a lot of us will ask at some point in our lives. Who am I? What what is my purpose? Peter tries to make the connection for us and for his congregation. So let's listen to our pastor this morning, Peter. First, who are they built on? Notice the imagery Peter uses. You yourselves are like living stones. You're being built up into a spiritual house. Uh, Peter has in his mind the, the temple, the temple that's in Zion, which is a, another way of saying Jerusalem. And he sees this temple, and now he's saying this, this church, this new church, they're like a temple. They're being built up into another house where God is going to reside. And in the Old Testament, the spiritual house was this Old Testament a temple that was in Jerusalem. You remember in Second Chronicles 7, Solomon gets to finishing the temple and he says that when he finishes his prayer, Second Chronicles says this, when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priest could no longer enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. So in the Old Testament, you you made a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem. You went to the temple because in a figurative way, that's where God was sitting. That's where you connected to the glory of God. You would go to the temple. Now, Peter also remembers another day in the temple with Jesus. And Jesus is having a conversation with the Jewish people in the courtyard. And he says this, destroy this temple, this temple that Peter understands is from Solomon. He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And the Jewish people replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. How is it possible that you would raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And so Peter understands that in the Old Testament, 
The glory of the Lord filled the temple. And that's where you met the Lord. That's where you could meet God. And now Jesus is saying something that's completely stunning to the audience. He, he walks up to this great temple mount that everybody's been flooding to. All these pilgrims are coming to him. And he looks at the temple and says, this is no longer needed. The new temple is here. There is another way to connect to God. It's not the old way, it's the new way, and I am that new temple. Now, whoever comes to me, they're going to see the glory of God. They're going to be in touch with God. They're going to connect to God now through Jesus. And so now in our text this morning, Peter extends that metaphor of the temple out to include us. We're, we're part of the stones. We're part of the living stones that's making up this new temple. And Jesus is the cornerstone, as we see in the text. We're the, we're the living stones that are built upon and in alignment with the cornerstone. Peter, in verse 6, quoting Isaiah 28, says, Behold, I'm laying in Zion, or I'm laying in Jerusalem, a stone, a, a cornerstone, a chosen stone, a precious stone. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. See, the, the cornerstone is the place where two walls would intersect, where they would get their alignment. So you would lay a stone and then you would start building the walls out from the stone. And then you could always look at the, the walls and say, well, they're, they're getting their alignment. They're sort of putting their weight on this one cornerstone. And what Peter has in mind is he's, he's telling us that everything is coming to this particular Point. This is the cornerstone of all human history. So if you look in the Old Testament and you look back, you can then begin to see. I can see how everything lines up to get to Jesus. So I look at the Old Testament temple and I can see it's moving towards Jesus. I can see the prophet of Moses and what he's doing. And I can see it's getting to Jesus. I can see the lamb who was slain, slain. It's coming to Jesus. Everything's pointing to and aligning to Jesus. He's the cornerstone. And now that the, the, the temple has arrived, now from that point forward through our history, everything's lining up from that stone. This is the, the chief cornerstone. This is the pinnacle of all human history. Everything, all of history is lining up around this one event, Jesus Christ. And he's reminding his congregation, are you aligned to this one cornerstone? One wall is the time prior to Jesus. One one wall is the time following Jesus. Jesus is the epicenter. He's the cornerstone. The cross is the intersecting point of all human history. Jesus, who was foreknown and chosen by God before the foundation of the world. First Peter chapter 20. Jesus, who is the door that everyone must pass through to get to heaven. Jesus is the ladder of Jacob. Jesus is the intersection between heaven and earth. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the living water. He's the bread of heaven. Jesus is the new temple. He's the true prophet. He's the true priest. He's the true king. Jesus is the rock of our salvation. He's our refuge. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is greater than Moses, greater than angels, greater than creation itself. Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. Jesus, who looked at Mary just before he raised Lazarus from the tomb and proclaimed, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Whoever believes in me, even though you will die, you shall live because Jesus alone has conquered death. Mary, do you believe this? 
Do you, Mary, do you see everything's lining up according to me? Do you believe it? And Jesus asks us that same question. Is that what you believe? Are you lining up? Is all your weight resting on this cornerstone or, or some other cornerstone? See, if you're, if you're lined up on this cornerstone, your foundation is never going to be shaken. See, you may be shaken, but your foundation is never going to shake. Because this is the one person, this is the one event in all human history that everything's lining up to. He is the chief cornerstone. And Peter is fueling hope and courage and purpose and destiny into the lives of his poor, seemingly insignificant congregation. He, he's, he's reminding his congregation who are anxious about the political system they're in. They're anxious about their minority status. They're anxious that, that the people in the, the culture don't like them and, and are actually hostile to their beliefs. He's saying, yes, I, I see all that. I'm not trying to take away the, the difficulty of that, but I'm trying to rest your foundation on something that's never, ever going to change. And that's Jesus. You're built on somebody who is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega who was and is and is to come. That is your solid foundation. But notice he uses also another word here to describe Jesus. Jesus is precious. It, it seems to me that Peter's trying to communicate. It's, it's not just that we want you to believe in Jesus. Jesus also has to be precious. It's more than just I'm acknowledging something. I'm, I'm living out in a different direction. I've got my, my mind, my soul, my body engaged in here with Jesus. Everyone here is a builder. Every person here is, is building their lives on something. Verse 4, we see that some people have looked at the stone They've looked at Jesus and they've rejected that stone. They say, I don't want Jesus to be my cornerstone. I'm going to rest my life. I'm going to align my life with someone or something else. But be sure everyone here is aligning themselves to some cornerstone. And whatever your cornerstone is, it's, it's precious. You, you can't let it go. It dictates everything else about your life. It's what you've put all of your weight on. It's how you've lined up your life. It, it, everything else pales in comparison, whatever your cornerstone is for you. And so that's one of my questions here this morning is, what's precious to you? Not just what do you believe in, because you might say, well, I believe something. But my question is, a, is sort of a, a second tier, a second layer. Not, not just don't just tell me what you think. Tell me what's precious to you. What's your cornerstone? Who or what sets the trajectory of your life? Your spouse, your parent, child, business, comfort, happiness, health, money, food, sex, anger. Your pride, your past, control, freedom, athletics, academics, your job title, family, being right, being a victim. Who or what defines who you are? Do you know what the answer is? Is it more than one thing? 
See, remember when, when Paul, the, Paul, the apostle, he walks into Athens and he looks around Athens and he sees all these idols. And he, he says, I can see you're a very religious people. But they didn't have the cornerstone. And I wonder if I walked into your mind, if I walked into your heart, would I look around and say, I can see you're very religious. But you don't have the cornerstone. It's not precious to you. Is it Jesus? Is Jesus more precious than anything else? It's not to say other things aren't important, but you line up according to him. I love in Matthew 13, remember the little parable that Jesus says, there's a man who was, saw a field, found a treasure in the field, saw that the treasure was valuable, went home, sold all he had. And then there was a man who was a merchant, had pearls, and he found the one great pearl, great price, and he went home and he sold all he had to go buy that one. Remember what it says? He found this precious pearl. He found this precious treasure, and then he went home, and what, did, what does it say? He, he sold all he had, but remember what his heart said? With joy, he sold everything else. Why? Because the one thing he had found was precious. And so all these other treasures that he had in his life now begin to fade away, to begin to pale in comparison because he found this one precious treasure. And yes, the other treasures may have had some importance, but they're beginning to fade. They're beginning to go away. And if they're not lining up according to this one cornerstone, then they're just not necessary anymore in my life. So that's the question Jesus is asking us. That's the question Peter is asking us is, is Jesus the precious cornerstone of your life? Are you lining up according to him? Second thing, who we are built with. We're, we're built on Jesus. We're built with. Notice this verse 9 and 10. Notice the plurality of the passage. Verse 5, you yourselves are living stones. Verse 9, you're a, a, raced, a race, you're a priesthood, you're a nation, you're a people. It's, it's so important to, for us to see Peter's mindset and the biblical mindset and that it's not an individual thing, it's, but it's a communal thing. It's not a single plan, it's a shared plan. God, God's plan has always been a group plan. And in our mindset, we, ha we have more of an individual mindset. But every time the Bible speaks, it's always speaking in much broader terms, much more of a community. And Peter is picking up on this. You're living stones. He could see the temple made of stones. And there's all kinds of stones, some at the bottom, some in the middle, some at the top, some resting on others and then resting on others down below. And so he's saying to this congregation, you all are you're the place where people are going to meet God and you're the intersecting point And you need to make sure you have your life lined up according to Jesus. But you also have to make sure your life is interconnected. So that some people are resting on you and you're resting on some people. Just like a stone in a wall, it might look up ahead and say, well, you know, I'm carrying some weight of somebody. I'm I, my, my faith, my maturity is is helping. It's encouraging somebody. Somebody's depending on me. 
And then you could look down and say, yeah, and I'm, I'm depending on him or I'm depending on her or I'm depending on them. And you know who those people are. It's whoever, when your faith gets shaky, you call. That's the person that you say, hey, my faith is shaky right now. I got to call you and you got to keep me in the wall. You got to make sure. See, that's why we do this with the baptism. See, the Powells, somewhere in their life, it's going to get shaky for the Powells. I don't know what it is, but I know it is going to happen. And either them or one of them or one of their children are going to say, I don't think so. And we're going to be the, the, the walls around them to say, no, no, no. Don't, don't get shaken. We're, our faith is going to help carry you all the way home. I was at a Young Life banquet last week for Topsail Young Life that's just getting started. And uh, the guy who spoke was a guy that was a college student while I was the Young Life area director, so it was really fun to hear him speak. And he used this passage out of Mark 10 that you're familiar with. You remember when Jesus is speaking in the house, everybody's in the house, and they, four guys are bringing the paralytic to Jesus. And they get there, and there's no room. You know, they try to get in, and they can't. And so what do they decide? We go up on the roof, you know, we open up this, you know, hole in the roof, which is, you know, unimaginable. All this stuff's falling down, crowded room, and then, you know, got enough room? Yeah, let's lower them down. They lower the guy down. Imagine his embarrassment, right? So you got four heads, you know, looking over the side. And Jesus looks up. And then he forgives this man's sin. But you know what it says in between? He looks up and he saw their faith. And he forgives this man's sin. See, your faith is going to carry someone to forgiveness. It could be that God wants to use your faith to say, hey, I know you don't believe it right now. I know you can't walk right now, but I'm going to carry you back to Jesus or I'm going to carry you to Jesus. And I'm trusting that when he gets you get in front of him, you're going to change. And I'm wondering if you're so interconnected with lives here at Christ Community Church or if you're a visitor at your own church, that if we took you out of the wall, would anything crumble? Would anybody notice? See, because you could have the American mindset that, you know, I just sort of visit and go around, sit back and meet and uh, make sure I get to the potlucks at the right time and all that kind of stuff. But you're not really connected. You're like a stone that's just over here. You're not holding anybody up and nobody's holding you up. That's the American mindset. That's the Western mindset. That's completely foreign to the Bible. So I'm asking you, if you're here, if you haven't yet joined Christ Community Church, why aren't you connected somewhere? What's keeping you from being the person who's going to be held up by somebody and hold somebody else up? Peter says, when the people of God who are so intersected with each other and they're focused on Jesus, the cornerstone, that's where the glory of God shows up. And that's where lives get changed. And you have churches that are interconnected, but they don't have this as the cornerstone. 
And you have churches that say they have this as the cornerstone, but nobody's interconnected. A very weak churches in my mind at that point. It's when those two things come together, you can see and sense the glory of God at that point. So that's who we are built with. Three warnings about this particular point. All, I think, are very helpful. Number one, in ter- three warnings about who we are built with. Number one, you cannot have a flourishing Christian life without being interconnected to the church. Just said that. I'm all for individual quiet times and sitting outside and enjoying God's creation. But you can't expect God to be working in your life with real force, with real transformation, if you're not built into a body of believers. It's just not the way it's designed. Peter's not just connecting his congregation to Jesus. He's connecting his congregation to each other. Second. Listen carefully. Loving the idea of Christian community. This is a warning. Loving the idea of Christian community above loving the actual Christians in your community. This is a warning for us. We can't love the idea of the Christian community above the actual Christians in our community. In other words, you can't say, I just love my church. It's the people I can't stand. You see what's happening? We have this idea and we love the idea. I love the idea of my of a small group. I just don't like the people in my small group. I love the idea of the youth group, but it's just the people in the youth group that drive me crazy. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says something just so profound, and I want to read it to you. The serious Christian is likely to bring with him or her a very definite idea or dream of what the Christian life together should be. And then they try to make that happen. A serious Christian is likely to have a definite dream of what the Christian life together should be. And then they try to make that happen. Thankfully, Bonhoeffer says, God speedily shatters such a dream. (laughs) How does he shatter that dream? He makes you be in a small group with people you don't like. It's quickly shattered. Every human dream injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to the genuine community itself. Every human dream injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community itself. He who loves his dream of community more than the community itself becomes a community destroyer. Because God has already laid the foundation of our fellowship, because God has bound us together in one body with Jesus Christ long before you entered in, then we enter in not as dreamers, not as demanders, not as destroyers, but as thankful recipients. Does that describe you? Are you entering in as a dreamer? This is the way Christ's community has to be. That's going to be quickly shattered. Are you entering in as a demander? You enter in as a destroyer? Or are you saying... God laid this chief cornerstone before the foundation of the world. He is building something. And you get to enter in right now at this place. And he specifically designed these people who are sitting next to you to be helpful to you. And some of them are going to be irritating. 
But that's what's going to be helpful to you. Do you hear what I'm saying? Even your pastor at times, very small amount of times, but times, <laughs> irritating. And let, let me just say, the body of Christ, this, this individual body, is designed to irritate you enough to not want to make this your permanent home. You see, if this was perfect, you'd just say, let's just all keep perfect. Let's never have any change. Let's, this is great. No, this, this is okay. But this isn't great. Great is being at this table around this shepherd. This is a, a little taste, but it gets sour at points and it's purposefully sour so you wouldn't make this your home. We're pilgrims. We're, we're exiles. We're sojourners. And the irritating part help us to keep going forward. Third warning, and really a whole sermon series could be used on this, but I'll just make one statement. The words Peter uses, race, nation, people, are loaded with significance. See, our, see our, our new identity as Christians now takes precedence over every other way you might describe yourself. What, what completely redefines your identity is your new birth, your, your connection to Jesus. It's not whether you're a Jew or Gentile. It's not whether you're white or black. It's not whether you're Anglo-Saxon or Asian. It's not whether you're from the north or the south. It's not whether you're an American or Chinese or Hispanic or Indian. See, see the new dividing line is whether you're a follower of Christ. So when you walk into a room, the people you're most closely connected to are people connected to Christ. Not whites, not blacks, not middle class, not Americans. The people you have the most in common with or have the most in common with Jesus. And you see, the implications of that are huge. Just one implication, marriage. See, you want to be connected to somebody who's connected to Christ. They don't have to be black or white or Asian or Indian. That no longer is a chief concern of yours. A chief concern of yours, or are they connected to Christ? If they are, doesn't matter if I'm white and they're black. Doesn't matter if I'm American and they're Asian. Those things don't matter anymore because what takes precedence is our connection with the chief cornerstone. And so Peter totally rewires the thinking of these people because in their culture, they've got Jews and Gentiles together. They've got people from Israel and they've got people from Asia. And he's saying, you know, that doesn't make, that's not the main thing anymore. The main thing is whether you're connected to Christ. Well, that'd be a whole nother sermon. Point three, what are they built for? What is the chief end of man to glorify God, to enjoy him forever? That's what we said this morning. Peter answers it in a bit of a different way. What are, what are we built for? To proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. To, to, to glorify means to make God public or to magnify. You and I can't make God bigger. God is. But what we want to do is we want to live a life that magnifies God, that people go, wow, he's so much bigger than I had anticipated. He's so much bigger than what I saw because of the way I saw this Christian community. And Peter uses the word 
that has some similar definition, proclaim. It's interesting that word in the Greek means to celebrate out. That's such a great picture. A party's going on inside. Jesus has ransomed me. What is it? What's the uh, cool in the gang song? The, a party's going on right here. A celebration throughout the year. So come along and celebrate, right? That's not in my text here. Probably shouldn't have been. But you see what's happening? The Christian is saying a celebration is happening. And the way you proclaim that celebration is you you celebrate it out. You let people see what's happened to you. And in your celebrating out, what happens is God gets bigger. And if in your celebration you get bigger, bad celebration. So you never want a testimony that makes you look big. You want a testimony that makes God look big. So we were built for this glorifying, this proclamation. Wayne Grudem, in his excellent commentary on 1 Peter, says this, God's purposes in redeeming us is not simply our own enjoyment, but that we might glorify him. Seeking our own eternal well-being could never provide a truly satisfying goal. Seeking our own eternal well-being could never provide a truly satisfying goal. The answer for our search for ultimate meaning lies in declaring the excellencies of God. Redemption is ultimately not a man-centered, is not man-centered, but God-centered. So here's my last question. What is the way in which you and I most magnify God? What's the what's the glory road paved with? I mean, when you hear my description, do you think, I guess we all have to become evangelists? My answer to that is no. I think the answer is in verse five. The glory road is paved with offering spiritual sacrifices. And Paul, the apostle, gives the best commentary on what that means in Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. So what's the glory road paved with? Your body. My body. See, see the, the life that's been laid down for Jesus is the pavement God uses to bring people to himself. You know this, don't you? The life that is laid down for Jesus is the pavement that God uses to bring people to himself. And you know it, and I know it, because of the cross. Him laying himself down enabled us. We're running across his pavement. And now God is saying, if you want people to get connected to the glory of God... You've got to look at the last seat as the best seat in the house. You've got to lay down your life and then people can run to Jesus because you've laid your life down. What are we built on Jesus? Who are we built with? Just these people, you, you and me. What are we built for? 
to lay down our lives, to be pavement, so people could run and see Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, there, there's a lot more in the passage that could be said. Critical pieces that got left behind. And I trust that because of your Holy Spirit, you brought this message from Peter to me, to these people for a divine purpose. That their lives in some place, as they've heard you speak through me, they have heard you speak into their lives about something they've built their life on that doesn't really intersect with you. Some prejudice maybe they have against another person, some some warped idea of the Christian community that's a dream that's right. That dream is actually destroying the community they want to build. Some other cornerstone. Some cornerstone of a person, uh, a bank account, a job that is eroding. And causing great anxiety. Holy Spirit, we pray for your perfect purposes now in these few minutes to solidify conversation between heaven and earth with these, your sheep. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.